We're aware that TCSO and the Tulare DA's office have given many different stories about the destruction of the Richmond case evidence in early 1977. Recently, they've only provided vague responses like, it was destroyed after Clifton's death, or as part of a routine purge. Not only are those answers completely false, they are meant to hide just how completely illegal and crazy the actual truth really is. As we've covered in blog posts and podcast episodes, the majority of the evidence was destroyed on February 28, 1977, at 2.30 p.m. by TCSO Sergeant Lovett. That was every single item of evidence in the case except Donna's pants, underwear, and sanitary pad, and Clifton's pocket knife, which were somewhere at the courthouse rather than in the TCSO evidence room, and four items stored in the crime lab refrigerator. Those four items were a vial of Donna's blood, a vial of Clifton's blood, an envelope containing Donna's pubic hair sample mixed with crusted dirt removed from her skin at autopsy, and a sample of Donna's stomach contents. Those last four items were destroyed by TCSO Brian Johnson on April 8, 1977, at an unknown time. Not only did Levin and Johnson carefully document the destruction, they both included notes that their actions were taken at the direction of TCSO Sergeant Bird. It's on the record in three places. This isn't a guess, rumor, or speculation. It is well-documented fact. It's been admitted in court. You can review the documents for yourself on our website and Facebook pages. It wasn't an accident or mistake. It was an intentional, highly illegal order. This raises four questions. What were the laws regarding preservation of evidence in California in 1977? When did the state disclose the destruction to Clifton? How did this impact Clifton's appeals? And why would Byrd want the evidence destroyed? In 1977, there were two main California penal codes that covered destruction of evidence. The first was PC-135. Every person who, knowing that any book, paper, record, instrument in writing, or other matter or thing is about to be produced in evidence upon any trial, inquiry, or investigation whatever authorized by law, willfully destroys or conceals the same with intent thereby to prevent it from being produced is guilty of a misdemeanor. The legislative purpose of PC-135 is to prevent obstruction of justice. The phrase, other matter or thing, has been interpreted by the courts to encompass an unending variety of physical objects. Other cases have involved items such as drugs and shoes worn during the crime. Any item that could be evidence is included. So, in short, Byrd committed a misdemeanor crime and faced up to six months in jail. Needless to say, there was a proper process for the destruction of exhibits in criminal cases, and it was contained in PC 1417 and 1418. 1417 says, All exhibits, other than documentary, which have been filed in any criminal action or proceeding, may be disposed of as provided in this chapter. 1418. If the action or proceeding has resulted in conviction, the disposal of exhibits, as provided for in this chapter, may be made at any time after termination of one year 
after the conviction has become final. In such cases, if the party entitled thereto is unknown, and in all other cases, the procedure shall be as follows. 1. The court in which the case was tried shall make an order specifying what exhibits may be released from the custody of the court without prejudice to the state. Upon receipt of such an order, the clerk of the court shall post a notice conspicuously in three public places in the county referring to the order, describing briefly the exhibits which the court has ordered disposed of, and fixing the date when and the place at which said exhibits will be offered for sale at public auction. The date fixed must be at least 20 days after the posting of the notice. 2. At any time prior to the time fixed for the auction, the owner or any person entitled to the possession of said exhibits may obtain from the court an order returning them to him. We admit that's a lot to take in. It covers any exhibits which do not qualify as evidence under PC-135. So, every item destroyed by Byrd was covered by at least one of those codes in 1977. Because there was a conviction, only the first part of 1418 applies. The disposal of exhibits as provided for in this chapter may be made at any time after termination of one year after the conviction has become final. Even the most bumbling person can understand what a year means. Clifton was sentenced on September 16, 1976, and Byrd ordered the destruction a mere five months later. Additionally, in looking at the 1977 definition of after the conviction has become final, we found the controlling California Attorney General's opinion, number 64-251. The final determination of an action or proceeding occurs when the jurisdiction over the subject and raise of the action ceases to exist in the trial or appellate courts. As long as the court retains the actual or constructive custody of the defendant in itself, it retains jurisdiction over him and the raise of the action. So that means that the exhibits could not be destroyed legally until one year after Clifton was no longer in prison or on probation. Obviously, in early 1977, he was in San Quentin on death row. Even if you imagine that Byrd somehow didn't understand the words conviction and year, he certainly would have noticed that he didn't get a court order post it in three public places, and then either hold an auction or receive a court order to give the items to the rightful owners. In addition to the general rules and laws that required TCSO to properly maintain the evidence in their custody, there were also two notices to preserve evidence filed in Tulare County Superior Court and in effect at the time of the destruction. These were filed in August and November 1976 in connection with the appeal of Clifton's conviction and death sentence. All evidence, whether used during the trial or not, was deemed material and necessary to the appeal, and the court clerk had a duty to notify TCSO to maintain the evidence. Obviously, Byrd was aware of the appeal and order, and clearly knew he could be held in contempt of court. Again, this was all totally insane. We've never seen or heard of any other case like this. Any normal DA conducting a conviction integrity review would see the destruction as a huge red flag, pointing directly to a cover-up. But DA Ward has just shrugged it off, like it's no big deal. He's wrong. It's a huge deal, 
and it points to the inescapable conclusion that the lead investigator knew for certain that he had sent an innocent man to death row. It's clear that Byrd violated two penal codes and court orders and faced jail time and fines if he had been charged and convicted. One would assume that he'd also lose his job since he could no longer testify in criminal cases. That's pretty terrible, but what would have happened to the case if Clifton won his appeal and got a new trial? He would have walked off death row a completely free man. The controlling law in California was People v. Hitch. Under Hitch, destruction of evidence violated due process if 1. The evidence was material, 2. The authorities had knowledge of the potential materiality of the evidence, and 3. The authorities either destroyed the evidence or failed to follow, quote, rigorous and systematic procedures to preserve it. The materiality standard in Hitch was met by showing, quote, a reasonable possibility that the evidence, if preserved, would have constituted favorable evidence on the issue of guilt or innocence. According to Hitch, the preservation of the material evidence served the function of possibly impeaching the test results or testimony, therefore suppressing the test results and testimony was the remedy for the improper failure to preserve the original evidence. Imagine trying to have a new trial with no mention of the invoice book, the so-called semen, tire tracks, boot prints, clothing trail, bike, hairs, Donna's shoes, or the leaf. If the state had found the items at the courthouse, they would have had Clifton's pocket knife, which tested negative for blood, fibers, hairs, and skin. Donna's pants, which had either been washed or were still clean. And Donna's underwear, which tested negative for everything other than her own menstrual blood. That left the state with no motive. Attempted rape was off the table. Nothing that connected Clifton to Donna or the seams and two witnesses to unrelated events whose identifications, descriptions, and timelines had been impeached at trial. There is one main reason that Byrd never faced any penalty for this. Clifton had no idea that the evidence was gone. Obviously, everyone within TCSO would have been aware of the destruction in 1977, but we don't know how far that knowledge extended. The first written proof we have that the DA's office knew was in 1985, when DA Coolyard contacted Morton in what appears to be an attempt to cover for the destruction of the evidence by substituting Morton's lab findings. Because Clifton had access to the evidence during the trial, but Donahue didn't have it tested by a defense expert, Clifton needed a court order to subject the evidence to post-conviction testing. That required some new testing that was not available during the trial which turned out to be DNA. Clifton began filing for DNA testing of all of the evidence in 1993. The first hint of the destruction wasn't disclosed to him until September 1997, more than 20 years after the fact. Between 1997 and 2001, the DA's office refused to provide any explanation, inventory, or documentation regarding the destruction. Finally, a judge ordered that all the records from TCSO 
the DA, and the outside labs be fully disclosed to Clifton. It took another two years, in 2003, for Clifton to get confirmation that all the evidence was truly gone. Again, you can read all of this in the documents we posted. It's impossible to know how Clifton's appeals would have progressed had all of the evidence been available for DNA testing back in 1993. Donna's fingernail scrapings could have identified her killer, or maybe he cut himself during the murder and left his own blood on her clothing. Clifton could have proven that there was no semen, which would have given him a resentencing and a real chance at parole. Later, after touch DNA was possible, they could have tested all of Donna's clothing and jewelry. They would have had to eliminate TCSO Johnson's profile, but it still could have pointed to the killer. All we know for sure is that without DNA pointing away from Clifton and or towards her killer, there was never going to be new evidence to overturn his conviction. It's easy to think that Byrd destroyed the evidence to hurt Clifton's appeals, but that is 2019 thinking. There was no way for Byrd to imagine DNA testing all the way back in 1977. There wasn't a reason to think that Clifton would ever be able to get a court order for new testing of the evidence after his conviction. It was impossible until new DNA testing laws went into effect decades later. So, who could have gotten the evidence tested in 1977? A different law enforcement agency, like the Celia PD or the Sacramento Sheriff. As we've covered in prior episodes and posts, Byrd was fully aware of the EARMO and the first two attacks in June and July 1976. We know that because the Sacramento Sheriff put a hold on one of Byrd's arrestees based on an almost exact MO match to the EAR. Ben Galloway, the Porterville rapist, was arrested the day after Clifton's conviction. So in July 1976, Byrd had specific knowledge of when the EAR started and his precise MO. As an aside, we should point out that the first two EAR attacks coincide exactly with the beginning and end of Clifton's trial. This fits a pattern of D'Angelo committing burglary sprees or violent attacks after TCSO publicized huge investigative mistakes, much like when he started attacking couples after the Sacramento Sheriff said they were safe. We feel that those first two EAR attacks served two purposes. He was mocking TCSO and VPD, and he was making sure that the EAR attack started before he moved back to the area in August. In early 1977, Visalia PD announced that they had reviewed the EAR cases and matched the EAR MO to the VR and Snelling homicide. The most compelling point cited by VPD was the fact that both the VR and EAR had, quote, the peculiarity of taking things, often items of little value, from one house and leaving them in another. In fact, on October 9, 1976, the EAR framed the victim's neighbor by leaving a bag of stolen jewelry in his house and then telling the victim if she screamed after he left, he would hear her and come back. If sheriff's deputies had not had the neighbor under surveillance during the next EAR attack, he could have ended up being charged with all of the rapes.
One thing that really distinguished VPD and Sacramento sheriffs from TCSO was their reaction to finding planted evidence and staged scenes. In Visalia and Sacramento, there was always skepticism, and it's easy to spot in the reports. Both departments seemed to suspect that the offender was messing with them, and rather than chase down false leads related to a flashlight, can, or cigarette butt found at the scene, they used it to develop their understanding of his unique M.O. It also led investigators in both cities to speculate that they could be chasing a fellow member of law enforcement. We cannot stress enough that it is undisputed that in early 1977, both departments were actively looking for other cases that involved false clues, framing, and staging, their offenders' most unusual and consistent M.O. points. Perhaps most importantly, not only had the EAR been connected back to Tulare County and his M.O. identified, but on February 8, 1977, Sacramento sheriffs identified the EAR's blood type. It was type A, the same type Grubb developed when he typed Blake's supposed semen sample. The only possible blood type that had been developed for Donna's killer matched the EAR. Could Bird have learned of this information in the weeks before he ordered the evidence destroyed? Here is what we know for sure. EAR investigator Shelby was aware of the ABO result on February 8, 1977. The Sacramento DA received the results on February 11, 1977. VPD investigators knew this information sometime between February 8th and May 18, 1977. And on May 2nd, 1977, Sacramento Sheriff issued an interdepartmental profile of the EAR that included his blood type. What we don't know is when this information was uploaded to California's CII and whether or not Sacramento made any inquiries to TCSO that could have alerted Byrd to the EAR's blood type. There is no question that the timing of the VR-EAR connection and blood type identification would provide a reasonable motive for Byrd to risk jail and his career to destroy all the evidence. So, what are we sure that Byrd knew in February of 1977? He knew that Clifton was on Garden Street while the freezer was being loaded. Byrd heard and hid the True Blood taped statement and photo identification of Clifton. He knew that the freezer loading occurred between 3.15 and 3.45 p.m. Byrd personally took the sworn statement of Frank Thomas, who stated that he looked at his watch, made a statement about the guys being late, and that P.I. Petty John asked him if he made such a statement, which proved prior knowledge gained directly from Clifton. He knew that Rick Carter taped a sworn statement, placing Clifton in his driveway at home at 4.15 p.m., and passed polygraph on that statement. Bird knew that Carter only made his later statement of 4.45, saying 4.15, I mean 4.45, after TCSO arrested and jailed Carter for Donna's homicide, and Powell dropped Carter's pending DUI charges in exchange for his changed testimony at trial. He knew that the bike ride from Donnelly's house to the bike scene took at least 25 minutes. Bird followed his own son making the ride and timed it. He knew that Donna could not have arrived at the bike scene before 4.10, and Clifton was home 
eight miles away as early as five minutes after that. He knew that Clifton did not and could not have killed Donna. He knew that additional examination and testing of the physical evidence could be matched to the real killer. For instance, the lab only examined hairs found on Donna's clothing that appeared to match Clifton. Dark hairs were not examined microscopically or ABO tested. He knew that Sacramento and or Visalia could request further testing of the Richmond evidence to see if it matched evidence gathered in their cases. He knew that the EAR was familiar with Galloway's kidnapping and rape MO. He knew that the EAR was using a combination of Galloway's MO and the VR's MO, suggesting a Tulare County connection. He knew that the EAR attempted to frame innocent men and misdirect investigators by planting evidence from other crimes, leaving false clues such as cans, cigarette butts, flashlights, and knives, and staging scenes like in the November 10, 1976 attack. He knew that Visalia PD were meeting with Sacramento investigators and could be expected to learn about Sacramento's prior match of the EAR and Galloway MOs. He knew that Sacramento sheriffs had obtained biological evidence from the EAR and would be aware of his blood type, PGM type, and secretor status. He knew that the VR left Tulare County and moved to the Sacramento area in the summer of 1976. He knew that D'Angelo resigned from Exeter PD, moved from the house three doors down from Birds, and began working at Auburn PD in August of 1976. There are other things that Bird could have known, but we can't prove with the evidence in our possession. Did Bird have specific knowledge that D'Angelo was seen on Marinette, Neil Ranch, List, Belmont, or Avenue 264 on the afternoon or evening of December 26, 1975? Did Bird talk to D'Angelo at the Exeter PD station on the night of the murder? And did D'Angelo attempt to direct the investigation or provide information on Clifton? Did Byrd recognize any of the undocumented tire tracks and footprints as belonging to an Exeter PD car or officer? Had Byrd heard rumors that D'Angelo was solving his own burglaries or calling in false alarms? Had Byrd or other members of law enforcement noted that D'Angelo looked like McGowan's revised composite drawing? Had there been any talk or speculation about D'Angelo leaving when VPD Patrol Captain Patrick Bowie took over as Exeter Chief? Did Byrd learn anything after he took over the armor investigation in March 1976 that pointed to a police officer picking her up or being seen near the homicide site? Did D'Angelo ever attempt to direct that investigation? Did Byrd join the TCSO response to search for the Snelling shooter, and or McGowan shooter? If so, did he see D'Angelo at either scene offering to help? Did Byrd learn anything during his investigation of two EAR MO attacks on women in their homes in 1974 that pointed to D'Angelo or a connection to the Richmond case? Did Byrd close the armor investigation as solved but unprosecutable simply to prevent other investigators from examining the case and developing a connection to Snelling, the VR, or the Richmond case? 
Were the newspapers in TCSO Johnson's report correct? And did TCSO recover Donna's underpants and a shoe from the bike scene and the other shoe in her pants from Neil Ranch? Were the items planted in a trail to Clifton's house by TCSO? Were David Richmond and his friends sent out to find the shoe by TCSO to lend credibility to the story? Was Laverne Lamb ever really in possession of Donna's pants? If so, did she really find them at the time and location contained in Bird's report? Were they really washed, or was that a cover story to explain the lack of mud and blood on them? Why weren't the pants logged into evidence until January 8th? To sum up, we believe with all certainty that Byrd knew that Clifton was actually innocent. Some of the reasons are well covered in the podcast. Refusing to gather exculpatory evidence at the scenes that pointed to alternate suspects, such as tire tracks, shoe prints, and witness statements. Personally confirming Clifton's alibi with Frank Thomas and hiding the True Blood tape. Lying about Clifton's statements on the night of his arrest. And destroying all the evidence that would have been needed if Clifton got a new trial. Obviously, Byrd was also aware of the lack of physical evidence, the pre-identification and shifting stories of the state's witnesses, the unidentified notepad found with Donna's bike, and the disturbing and unexplained false kidnapping scene. How could Bird possibly have believed that nobody saw Donna ride the 4.3 miles right through Exeter from Don Lee's house? How did it make sense that Donna got off her bike where it was found, but was never standing or walking there? Why would Clifton wipe all of the fingerprints off Donna's bike, including her own? Why would he wipe all of the fingerprints off his own invoice book and then leave it next to the bike? How did he get the notepad? Why would he have wiped it of prints, and why would he leave it by the bike? Why would Clifton take the time to do all of that fingerprint wiping? How would he control Donna during that time? Some white paint transferred to the bike. It did not match Clifton's truck, and the lab concluded that it was similar to the paint on the TCSO evidence vehicle. Did it match in the Exeter PD car? Why were the front wheel and handlebars on the bike turned around? like the bike had been in the trunk of a car. There is no way that Bird really believes that Donna was kidnapped where her bike was found. From 1997 to 2003, Clifton tried to get a court hearing on the destruction of the evidence. During that time, various Tulare County Superior Court judges refused to order a hearing. And when the TCSO officers involved refused to answer defense questions, the court said that they didn't have to comply. State laws and Clifton's constitutional rights were grossly violated, and the court didn't want to hear a word about it. TCSO Levitt is deceased, but we did reach out to Byrd and got no response. We've written to TCSO Forensics Officer Brian Johnson on multiple occasions and spoken to him in person. Johnson is a story for another episode. Mm-hmm.